You are listening to When Policy Meets Practice from JFF, where we delve into the practical realities of education and workforce development policy with practitioners on JFF's Policy Leadership Trust. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Paul Fain. For this episode, I spoke with three community college leaders about what their institutions are doing to improve equity. The pandemic, as we all know, highlighted and exacerbated the challenges that Latino, Black, and lower-income college students face, particularly those who attend two-year colleges. Michael Baston, the president of New York's Rockland Community College, talked with me about how both policymakers and employers can do more to create equitable outcomes for community college students. Now we need our business and industry partners to move beyond statements of support to steps and to look at the conditions of the community and to make sure that the economic opportunities for those corporations to not just make feel-good commercials or minimal investments that ease the social consciousness, but actually to look at themselves as recognizing that there's an opportunity to create ladders for diverse candidates in industries and, and, and businesses where there is no diversity. I also spoke with Janet Spriggs, president of Forsyth Technical Community College, which is located in North Carolina. She made the case for why state and federal funding streams should be used for holistic student supports. It's reasonable for us to, I think, expect that we can change policy around. We can't just use this money for helping them learn math better and preparing them to succeed in math class. We also need to help keep them in class, whatever that takes. Finally, Cynthia Olivo, Vice President of Student Services for California's Pasadena City College, told me how her institution is working to embed equity in hiring and professional development for its faculty and staff members. How do we redesign our job descriptions to be equity-minded? How do we redesign our questions so that we don't just have that one standard equity question? Essentially, every question in the interview became an opportunity for us to explore the candidate's background as in regards to equity. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. First up is Michael Baston from Rockland Community College. I wonder if you could just start on the state of play at your campus and around New York. Well, certainly, as you know, New York was one of the epicenters of the pandemic. And so the issues and the amplification of those issues on the economic, the social unrest and other things sort of were amplified in our community. Uh, And that had an impact, for example, on enrollment because people had to make decisions whether they could come to class or whether they could actually help as first responders working in hospitals or those folks that brought around your packages that were driving the Amazon trucks or Uber Eats and things like that. So the pandemic not only had a physical toll on our community, but also the economic reverberations of that, because many times community college students like mine are on the front line in so many different ways. And so now trying to allow them to come back to uh, recover and resume sort of the hopes and dreams and aspirations they had before the pandemic is part of what we need to work on today. 
Absolutely. And I don't want to sound Pollyannish here. I know as a society, we have a long way to go to understand how hard it is for lower income folks. But I do feel like the pandemic showed a little bit of not just the financial barriers, but the time, the emotional barriers that community college students face in keeping on track with all the responsibilities they have. As you talk to policymakers or make the case in your community for interventions to help are you seeing a different attitude or a better understanding of what these students face? Well, certainly it was helpful for me in working with my local elected officials to recognize the importance of providing us the support that we need to help our students. It is critical to recognize that our students are often the most sort of economically vulnerable often the most critical to the working of a community because many of them are low-wage workers that ultimately are looking to get a better leg up in life. Oftentimes, when we think of the college student, we fix our mind on the traditional age college student. But at community colleges all around the country, those students are a little older. They have had more challenges or other things to juggle. And so to get our elected officials to recognize how important it is, even to finance education, when you think about the FAFSA form, the financial aid process, the formulas to determine what should be an expected family contribution based on where a person lives, I think we need to have our elected officials look at the formula because what you think it would cost for a person to live in a community, and that is the formula by which you determine how much federal assistance they can have, we got to look at these formulas because they're not really connected to what's happening in the real world where real people live and work. And so that's one very specific opportunity for us. We have a lot of adult learners that come into the community college space, but many of them, if they earn a few more dollars because of the multiple jobs they have, they're not eligible for financial aid. Or if they want a shorter term program that will ultimately get them back into the workforce on a ladder to higher opportunities, well, many of the federal programs do not support helping them to have the financial aid necessary to take the shorter term program. You know, at my college, we did a program called Career Skills Academy, where we put people through short term training so that they could actually go out into jobs making $40,000, $50,000 to start. Well, if the training program is three to $5,000, for that shorter term, and it'll get you fifty or sixty thousand. You would say, "Well, that's a great investment." But if you have an economic fragile situation, you can't afford the three thousand or five thousand dollar investment that would get you to fifty or sixty thousand dollar job. And so, here's a place where the federal government can participate, because at the end of the day, that three to five thousand dollar investment gives you a return in tax-based benefits because now we contribute, as those folks are now in the workplace, not only do they contribute to the vibrancy of the community, but to the economic destiny of the country. That's a really good example. And, and as we all know more now than we did before, it's not you know $3,000, it's $400 can sidetrack folks, most folks around the country. You know, But I love that example also because you're talking about making a rational decision about investing in your future. And to do that, you've got to know with some confidence that there is a job on the other side of it. And I know you all have been working with employers. Can you talk a, a little bit about how the dynamic has shifted from an equity perspective with employers during this year? 
But what we know is that there is a sort of a social consciousness that we do see rising up. So, you know, with the killing of George Floyd and sort of the social sort of reckoning that has happened, many companies have made lots of statements of support about being sort of uh, against bigotry and against racism and against all these different things that really have been a part of our country for many, many generations. But now we need our business and industry partners to move beyond statements of support to steps and to look at the conditions of the community and to make sure that the economic opportunities for those corporations to not just make feel-good commercials or minimal investments that ease the social consciousness, but actually to look at themselves as recognizing that there's an opportunity to create ladders for diverse candidates in industries and businesses where there is no diversity. And so here's an opportunity to create sort of equitable outcomes for all in our community. And I think the partnership with business and industry, the partnership with other institutions at this point is going to be critical if we really want to uh, dismantle structural racism, if we really want to level the playing field. It's not enough to say we understand the different definitions of diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. It is now necessary for us to do very concrete things, you know, looking at the federal apprenticeship programs to ensure that there are opportunities for diverse and inclusive opportunities to build those pipelines. You know, to what extent are we incentivizing business? And here's another place where the federal government can play a role. When we talked in the 70s about affirmative action, you know, what we were talking about at that time was really this opportunity to address the gaps that were established in law that then produced outcomes that allowed unconscious bias and unchallenged narratives to continue to make us a divided country. Now is the time for the federal government to participate in making us a more united state. And part of that is to work with business and industry to incentivize ways like apprenticeship and other things that will allow us to have a much more diversified, prepared workforce. And right now, obviously, I love that point. Employers, the need for for bringing in talent seems to be different than in my career. And I know there's debate about where there are labor shortages and where they should just pay more. But it, it feels like a time where if you got a nudge from the state or the federal government to do better, those incentives could make a difference. Do you agree? Are you, are you optimistic? I do think that there is a mood in the country that we can do better, that we can go further. I think one of the things that the pandemic has brought us is sort of a real sense of sort of equalized pain, disappointment, hurt, and frustration. All of us went through a challenging time. And that common humanity that actually grew out of that experience, my hope is that that common humanity will move forward. I mean, think about the things that my colleagues talked about in our other sessions, talked about this idea of faculty hiring and curriculum development and recruitment and retention so that we could further diversify, you know, the academy and the who gets to go to school and for what and how and when. Those conversations in the past have happened, but I think there's a, a renewed sense, even in higher education, that we have to really 
push forward and to make things better. You know, I'm working in equitable transfer right now. I'm helping four-year institutions partner with two-year institutions so that they can ultimately see the benefit of providing clarity of purpose and opportunity to improve outcomes. So there is this sense that this is a moment for our country where we can regain our competitiveness. This is a moment for our country when we can move ahead and, and, and get out out of 12th place uh, in the world in terms of innovation in other areas where we have always been the standard bearer. This is the moment where we can be all of the ideals that are in our framing documents. This is our moment. And, and what we're saying to our policymakers, to our legislators, is that you have the ability to actually bring us into this next opportunity of America's great story. It's a great moment to leave this on. Thanks for doing this. And uh, let's keep in touch as, uh, as things play out the next year. You got it. Great to be with you. All right. Now I'm going to turn to my interview with Forsyth Tech President Janet Spriggs. How are you doing, Janet? I'm doing great, Paul. Thank you so much for asking. And thank you so much for having me here today. Well, thanks for doing this important topic. As you know, I wondered if you could just give us, to start out, give us a sense of your equity priorities and where Forsyth is, where you'd like it to be. Sure. Well, at Forsyth Tech, as you know, because we've had conversation about it, equity is a, a big focus for us. We have a tagline as part of our brand that says that Forsyth Tech is a place of promise. And we intend to live that brand. We want to infuse equity into everything that we do. We're making it part of our DNA. We have a vision statement that says that we will be a catalyst for equitable economic mobility, empowering lives and transforming communities. And we built our Vision 2025 strategic plan around how we can be that catalyst by providing access and making students successful once they get here, and then getting them into career pathways that help them advance socially and economically. So we included an equity statement as part of that vision, that strategic plan, and we take it seriously. We're interested in advancing social mobility for everyone. Obviously, when you're tackling structural racism and inequity, you can't do it yourself as a community college, no matter how, how hard you try. Can you talk about how you've worked in the community to kind of strengthen your networks? Yes, absolutely. That's a big part of our work, understanding that this is a problem that's just simply too big for one college or one group of colleges. I mean, we're, we're it's a national issue. It's a human issue that we all have to come together around. So we have, we built Forsyth Tech Cares, that's an office. It falls under our Student Success Services Division. And essentially, we were talking about it before COVID. And then COVID just exacerbated all of this for all of us because I've used many times an analogy of that COVID was a storm and all of us had boats that we were in to weather the storm. But we had students that had basic life rafts and some that were barely hanging on. Their, their ships were just not as sturdy as ours, maybe. And so we had to kind of accelerate our work around Forsyth Tech Cares. And what that is, is this web of resources, web of a connection 
to all of these entities and different agencies and different partners within our communities that can help bring those resources for holistic student support to bear as needed by our students, if that makes sense. It's an exciting effort. It's expanded into things like we are talking now with our hospitals about having an actual health care clinic five days a week for our students and their families on our campus starting very soon. We have food pantries. We have connections with our Wake Forest University right here in Winston-Salem for their law students to be able to provide legal services for our students. So it's just been an amazing opportunity for us to search for ways to use collective impact to really do transformational, remarkable change. That's a lot of support, a wide range. Obviously, all of that, most of it, I would assume, takes resources. Um, How have you been able to funnel resources to this work? And has that changed in the last six months? Yes, it has. So we were very fortunate when we started for Scythe Tech Cares in March of 2020. And, you know, just as we were starting to not shut down, but start to move to a virtual reality for such a long time, we did it with institutional money and money from our foundation. We just said, we've got to be able to support these students. and We're going to funnel some resources that we already had as long as we can. And then it was a wonderful opportunity for us through the Kate B. Reynolds Charitable Trust to get some privately donated funds. We got $440,000 from the KBR Trust to be able to expand that effort and all of those efforts and really institutionalize this work. And so, however, you know, that is a three-year grant and it's going to carry us very far in three years, but it's not enough So we've had to do some creative things. We've had to go out and find partnerships that do not cost money for us. We've had to leverage some of our federal stimulus dollars, which has been very impactful as well. And then, you know, we're also lobbying in some ways for a greater understanding about what community college students face as barriers. Most of our funding from state and or federal resources or local governmental resources is all attached to instruction and to administration of instruction. And there are definitely needs for using that money to help students with academic unpreparedness or underpreparedness. But what we also know about our students is that we need to be able to help them when their transportation plans fall apart. Our students are one flat tire, in some cases, literally away from having to drop out of school. And so we're working on trying to help change policy around or thought around policy. Can we utilize governmental resources to help holistically support students and keep them moving forward in class? If they're forced with a decision, Paul, about needing to buy medicine for their children, because we have so many of our students who are working parents, they're going to always choose buying the medicine and not coming to school. And so it's reasonable for us to, I think, expect that we can change policy around. We can't just use this money for helping them learn math better and preparing them to succeed in math class. We also need to help keep them in class, whatever that takes. So we're kind of approaching it from multiple angles around getting the message out about our students need a different kind of support than perhaps what people traditionally think about. Is there more awareness 
with the legislature of that side of the need equation. And for folks listening, maybe not just in North Carolina, what can state lawmakers do to make an impact quickly when it comes to their performance formulas or, or other funding streams? Well, I think there's a couple of things. So in North Carolina, of course, we have parity funding for short-term programs and curriculum programs. That's been a huge policy issue for us, a huge benefit for us. We can now, for example, get students who just need to get to work quickly to start getting some income and can't afford to wait two years to get going in their career pathway or to get a job. We make the same money. You know, we earn the same amount of money for teaching those short-term workforce development classes as we do for those two-year programs. So that's a huge policy. Um, many states don't have that. And I think that that's a huge policy issue. The short-term Pell from the federal level is also going to be instrumental in helping us. Right now, while we earn the same amount of money for delivering those classes, we can't give the same Pell money to students who want to take these short-term classes as we can for the two-year program. And for so many of our students, it's a matter of let's get them to work and then they can come part-time. We can figure out how to get them to the next level, but first we have to get them stable financially. So I think those are the biggest things. And then also, you know, perhaps some policy again around or some consideration around the holistic aspect of the support that our students need to be successful, wrapping around the whole student, not just the academic barriers, but the non-academic barriers, the things that we call life happens. Because for our students, life happens can be the end of their educational journey. And if they can't complete, they can't be successful, they get stuck where they are and they can't move forward financially and socially. Well, we'll leave it there, Janet. Thanks so much for your time and for sharing your thoughts on these important topics. Thank you so much for having me, Paul, and, and I appreciate it. Next up is Cynthia Olivo from Pasadena City College. How are you doing? Doing great. Thank you. So big topic. Obviously, a lot of ground for us to cover here, but I was hoping you could just give us a sense of your top priorities from an equity standpoint for the college on the tail end of the pandemic? We're currently putting in place debt relief programs, utilizing our, our federal CARES funding and, um, you know, ensuring that our students who had to leave, withdraw, um, or take uh, incompletes or Ws, that they are able to re-enroll and not have the debt that usually has an institutional enrollment hold to make sure that that's not preventing them from re-enrolling. You know, I want to get to a couple other pieces here, but on that with the CARES Act money, looking forward, are there ways that policymakers could smooth that process for the colleges? Are there aspects of recovery money, assuming there might be more, or there might be some state funds you could use for that that could best help make that money go to where it needs to go? When practice that should be put in place is every college should disaggregate the data, at least by race and ethnicity, because equity calls for us to ensure that we are placing the resources and attention where they are needed the most. And if institutions are not doing that basic disaggregation of data, they will not know which communities need the most support. 
And uh, at PCC, we disaggregate the data so that we can be very intentional about how and who we're helping. And um, we take that as a very personal, you know, um, call upon ourselves as professionals. Let's switch gears here and let's talk about faculty professional development and how that plays a role in better serving students from an equity lens. Yeah, I would say, you know, most of our students, once you get our students enrolled, um, the majority of the time they spend is with a faculty member, whether it's virtual or in person in a classroom. We're talking hundreds of hours during any given semester or summer or winter intercession, right? So we need to make sure that our faculty members are aware that beyond their content expertise in their discipline and the course they're teaching, we need to ensure that our faculty members are well-versed in which pedagogy is helpful for our students who are minoritized, right? So the students who are experiencing difficulties in their community and society in general, that all comes with them to our classrooms. And we need to build up our faculty so that they pay as much attention to the ways in which we're interacting with students as they are to their content. Has that effort taken on new urgency or or shifted in the way that faculty approach it in the pandemic? I would say so. You know, one of the ways that student services is trying to partner with and bolster the support for faculty is to make it super easy for faculty members to get the help they need to respond to students who are in need. For example, we have our Lancer Care Virtual Center, and it's basically a basic needs center. So we have social workers, a marriage family therapist who specializes in Black and Latinx family studies, emergency aid, which we've awarded over $2 million to our students, And that's just in the past six months. We make it super easy so that faculty just can reach out via an electronic method. And then we respond and the faculty members basically can do a warm handoff. I would say that's newer during the pandemic. And we needed to figure out a way since we're not all on the same campus during the pandemic and we can't just walk a student over, right? We had to figure out how could we do that warm handoff in a different way that's just as fast and effective in helping our students navigate these life barriers that pop up. Let's talk hiring. Obviously, you want to be making sure that students have access to professors and and instructors who who can relate to them from an equity basis. How have you gone about to really bulk up your DEI hiring? Yeah, over the years, I would say we started with taking the Equal Employment Opportunity Training, and we made sure that instead of just having an attorney come in from a legal perspective to do like a PowerPoint that just describes what we're all having to do for compliance purposes for EEO, we switched it up. And, you know, we are a people who love teaching and learning. So we switched it up and we created a teaching and learning opportunity for EEO. And the content of our EEO training therefore became, how do we check for bias and eliminate bias in hiring? It was a great way to identify how do we redesign our job descriptions to be equity-minded? How do we redesign our questions so that we don't just have that one standard equity question Essentially, every question in the interview 
became an opportunity for us to explore the candidate's background as in regards to equity. Since that point, we've also turned some of our hiring, especially for administrators, into competency-based hiring. And we're doing redacted screening. So we redact any affiliations, colleges and universities, things that might play into bias from people on hiring committees. So I'm just really proud that we've continued to take that creative exploration um, from changing our EEO and implementing something different. Um, The other piece that uh, I wanted to share is, especially when new faculty are hired, all new faculty participate in a year-long seminar. And every other Friday, they gather for four hours with uh, full-time faculty who are given release time to teach a year-long course on how to embed equity-minded practices in your teaching practice. That has truly been transformational for our institution, especially because we've hired hundreds of new faculty in the past five years as this has been in place. So I think that's one of the huge ways we've been able to impact students through classroom practices and supporting our teachers. So that's some of what we've done. That's an impressively substantial commitment in terms of professional development. As a last thought, what would you like policymakers or folks who work on federal state policy to know about how best to encourage the good work that you're doing at Pasadena City College? Yeah, I would say, you know, there's so many ways. I love that Ibram Kendi, uh, at the end of his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, one of the findings he said was, if we can create policy, that's the best way to eliminate racism, right? And so for me, I would just continue to ask policymakers to be intentional with that and to understand that as we're designing policy, we need to be sure that we're thinking of the people who are the most minoritized in our society. And that's been amplified during this pandemic. It's our Black and Latinx, our Native American, our basically, you know, Black Indigenous people of color. And uh, it's so important to backwards map from history, right? We are the groups, I'm, I'm Latina, right? We are the groups that experienced the historical exclusion through laws in our country, right? I am the granddaughter of people who had to go to all Mexican segregated schools. They did not have a choice. My grandparents faced laws that said no Spanish allowed, right? English only. So we need to be just as intentional as we're creating laws that provide inclusion. So um, that would be my recommendation to policymakers. Well, Cynthia, thanks so much for talking this through with us. We'll be watching Pasadena City College to see what comes next. Sounds like you have a lot of promising initiatives that, you know, fortunately for you all, were started before the pandemic. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to share. Thank you. Okay, so to try to make sense of what we just heard, I'm going to turn to two experts from JFF. Michael Collins is the vice president who's working to address the ways in which post-secondary education and training systems can help members of vulnerable populations advance economically, with special focus on black learners and workers. And we'll also hear from David Altstadt, an associate director at JFF who's focused on policy. Please stick with us. 
I'm here with Michael Collins and Dave Altstadt. How are you guys doing? Great. Doing great. So let's just start with the big takeaways. What did you hear there, Michael? What most kind of stuck with you? It was a great conversation. I really appreciated really the kind of the focus on where we are in this moment in post-secondary, right? There was talk about the impact of the pandemic and kind of what we need to be doing now. And I, I thought that there was a lot of talk around the economic reality. We thought, you know, there was talk about short-term credentials and what that did to get people jobs, the needs for support. There was talk about what we need to be doing around kind of structural racism. And so it just felt very, very timely. The one big takeaway for me, though, was really, in some ways, kind of the false distinction between college and work. You know, I mean, the more that I listen to Michael Baston and, and Janet, it just occurs to me that learners are workers and workers are learners, right? And and we need to update our policies kind of to, to reflect that reality. So just, uh, I thought, lots of great content. How about you, Dave? Yeah. First, I want to just call out, I just really impressed by the work that they're doing at Rockland, at Forsyth, at Pasadena City College, and really with a commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion, the work that Cynthia talked about on faculty professional development, on hiring with a diversity, equity, inclusion lens to that, the focus on holistic student supports, that foresight and really drilling into meeting those needs, emergency aid, food, legal assistance, healthcare on campus, focus on sort of short-term and transfer at Rockland. And what strikes me is that they're doing all this. They're meeting this moment and the needs of their students and their community, really in spite of a policy environment that is focuses on these issues. I mean, they're doing all this innovation and I'm wondering where's policy kind of to help sustain and scale this work across, which is so necessary. Let's push into that a little bit. Cynthia talked about dismantling the legacy of structural racism. Michael, you mentioned this just a second ago. Can you give us a bit on, on what an anti-racist policy environment might look like in these contexts? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I think Cynthia started out describing that frankly, by first naming, right, naming like what we're dealing with, right, like naming inequality. And then she mentioned the importance of disaggregating data, right, so that you can allocate resources to where there is need. And she actually, and we haven't done this in the past, and this is more new, but she actually named the populations, right? She, she said Black, Latinx, Indigenous students. And I think that that's an evolution in how we've talked about these issues historically, really before the murder of George Floyd and the disaster, you know, that was last year. We talked about students of color. We talked about low-income students and all these different proxies. And so I think as we think about policy solutions, getting to disaggregating the data, understanding which populations we're focusing on, when she talked about allocating resources, that has implications for funding, for formula funding. And I think that issues around who goes into what programs, issues around who is able to take a college level course and who has to take remediation. Michael Bastin actually talked about equitable transfer. So as we think about structural racism and policy plays, I think first, we really need to start with kind of transparency and naming that our policies, our systems and structures are actually not neutral, right? And that there are differential impacts. And I think that Cynthia's focus on support for students 
the support for faculty, the professional development really is kind of trying to kind of lean on the disaggregated evidence and the evidence around what those students need to be successful. She talked about kind of the culturally responsive kind of teaching and learning, and I thought they're doing a great job there at Pasadena on that. Absolutely. Dave? Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on, Michael. You know, we have to really drill into the experiences of specific populations, Black students, Latinx, Indigenous, and understand how our systems and structures have disproportionately impacted them. We have these higher ed structures in particular that just create so many barriers to entry and success. And the thing that I think about is just in this moment with the pandemic and all the disruption that occurred starting last spring and going forward, we as a nation and as a sector of higher ed, they had to make a lot of big changes that were very positive, you know, right? We had a lot of new investment that was directed toward meeting the kind of emergency needs of students and families writ large. Some of the practices in higher ed, like high stakes testing for a placement and those, we couldn't proctor those exams in person. So states and institutions had to get creative and actually lean into what we know to be some of the evidence of what's better in this area of multiple measures using GPA and other things to consider self-placement, allowing other people to figure out if they're ready for college level courses. And I worry a little bit now that we're kind of getting back to normal, how many of these kind of innovations, these investments are going to slide away and we're going to get back to an environment that unfortunately create disproportionate obstacles to education attainment and economic opportunity. You know, David, I worry about that too. One other thing I just wanted to add really quickly. The other thing that I worry about is that we're not going to take advantage of all of the signals that we have around the policy infrastructure that we need, right? Whether it's emergency aid, articulation, you know, kind of connecting non-credit and credit, short-term and long-term training, right? Like the supports piece, all these places where our policy was really kind of sclerotic and flat-footed, right? Like, so we have these signals and I'm hoping that we will modernize, right? Like our policy infrastructure to really meet the moment. So when we have our next economic disruption, that we're more prepared, our systems are more connected when we're more prepared. For just a quick last thought, Michael, President Baston was pretty optimistic talking about the shared experience of the pandemic and leveraging that to move forward on these issues. You know, do you share that optimism generally? Absolutely. We have to, you know, even on my, even on down days, right? You, we have to be optimistic, right? Because optimism is going to give us the energy that we need for collaboration and for advocacy and for action, right? Michael Baston said we have to move past kind of this, the statements to action. And I think that we have to be optimistic that we can come together as a people. He, you know, Michael Baston also mentioned, you know, the importance of, of coming together. And I, I don't, want to lose the optimism we have to live up to the ideals of this country because families communities rely on this we have to create equitable access to opportunity for economic advancement and economic mobility and i hope that we all will stay optimistic that we're going to do that and we are going to do that well that's a good good last word michael dave thanks so much for joining me to talk through this absolutely paul thank you thank you